Yesterday, many of you took to the streets with signs and banners as part of the March for Our Lives events that happened here in Portland and around the country. There were about 100, maybe a little bit more, more than 100 of us from Trinity who marched. And the center, the heart really, of our witness was a group of kids. They were members of Trinity's youth group, singers in our, our Boys and Girls Choir, members of our Acolyte Guild, this emerging generation of Episcopalians whom, it seems to me, see the violence and bloodshed in America perhaps in, in starker and, and maybe less compromised terms than the rest of us may. There's not, a lot of, there's not a lot of gray area when it comes to guns, at least as far as our kids are concerned. So it was an inspiring day in many ways. In other ways, in spite of the energy and the excitement of the crowd, it was kind of a hard day. There was a lot of pain in that procession, despite the strident calls for justice and change. I was walking for a bit with Maria McDowell, who's a former member of Trinity, who many of you know. Maria is now a priest, serving a congregation across the river in Northeast Portland. But she grew up in the Orthodox Church, and Maria told me that in many Orthodox icons, graphic depictions of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that story that we acted out in the courtyard and then in the streets, in traditional icons of the triumphal entry, only the children are shown waving palm branches. Only the children. And according to Maria, that's because in the iconographical tradition, the adults in the scene are the ones who will turn around and betray Jesus. This crowd that celebrates him as the leader of the, the movement against Roman occupation, that's the same crowd who will subsequently call for his torture and his death. Hosanna turns to crucify in a matter of days. It's only the kids who remain untouched by this. Only the kids get it. They're the ones who get to wave the palm branches. They're the ones who really understand what's going on. Because we adults betray, don't we? We betray one another. We betray our deepest values. We betray the ones whom we love the most. We betray ourselves. We leave behind the the youthful idealism, the firm convictions that used to galvanize us. We learn to see a more complicated world, a world with fewer hard and fast rules, a world with far less black and white, a lot more gray. We deconstruct, we nuance, we learn political maneuvering, we know when to keep our head down, we compromise, and we calculate. And little by little, the moral center of our lives gets chipped away at until we're left with very few certainties and a whole lot of anxiety. The world used to seem a lot simpler, didn't it? We wonder, what, what happened? When did I become so cynical? When I was a boy, the story of Jesus' crucifixion kind of fascinated me. It was, it was not actually so much the story as a, a couple of pictures in a child's picture Bible that I had. I carried it to, to, to Sunday school with me every, every week. Three crosses were in this picture. They were seen from behind, bright blue sky behind them, and three men hanging from them. The next panel was a close-up of Jesus himself with a crown of thorns around his head, blood pouring down, his face contorted in agony. And these pictures repelled me in a certain kind of way, but they also like, fascinated me. I, I couldn't stop looking at them. I was, I was terrified to imagine what that pain must feel like. And yet there was a part of me that, that couldn't help but wonder. Like, would I, ever, 
would I ever be asked to, to endure something like that? My Sunday school teachers taught me that this was a good thing, right? It was a, a holy thing, a beautiful thing. They called it Good Friday, and I couldn't figure out what was good about it. Like, it, it seemed to me like the most horrible thing that could happen to somebody. And yet somehow I, I couldn't just turn the page and, and push it away. I found myself returning again and again to those two pictures, to cross, three crosses on a hillside, and then the face of a man in agony. In an agony that, that it was suggested to me was not just you know, anonymous. It was not just a simple reporting of facts. Thus and so happened to such and such a person a couple thousand years ago. The invitation was that somehow this story, this picture, this cross, this man had something to do with me. And so the years go by, I, I learned to push away the horror of that story. I focused on other places instead, the life that Jesus lived, the teachings and the miracles, the, the historical data behind the gospel stories, you know, what really did or didn't take place, all of the ways in which this story has been used and abused as a means for social control and religious authority made into a, a system or a symbol or a philosophy. I learned a bunch of different theories about Jesus' death and what it means, different ways of conceptualizing what's going on at the cross theologically, what it's supposed to save me from my sins, whatever that means, or maybe it's just a, a symbol of human cruelty, you know, the ways in which we police one another, we create scapegoats to confront our existential fears, or maybe it was just political maneuvering, right, on some grand scale, a historical incident that tells us a lot about the Roman Empire, but very little about a 21st century American life. And still, that, that face on the cross, that bleeding contorted face is like, like seared into my memory. And I think not just because it was a, a startling image for a five-year-old, although it was, but it's because something about this story, something about that face keeps finding me somehow. I saw it again yesterday when I was watching Emma Gonzalez, the, the Parkland shooter survivor on CNN. She was speaking in Washington at a rally yesterday, and Emma begins, she invokes the memory of her classmates who were killed in Parkland, and then her, her voice breaks. She begins to, to weep, and she stands there at the podium in front of thousands of people in silence. And at first, you know, the crowd is kind of with her in, in her pain and, and her passion. And then you can sort of sense how the crowd begins to get uncomfortable. Like, is she okay? What's going on? So they, they start to cheer, they start to applaud, you know, that kind of dies out. She remains stoic. Her eyes are shut at first, and then they're wide open. She's just staring straight ahead. Nothing is distracting her. The crowd begins to cheer, they begin to chant. That dies away, like two minutes pass, three minutes, four minutes of silence. Finally, one of the minders like, kind of comes up and whispers in her ear, even still, she will not break focus. Nothing will distract this girl from what she's there to do. She stands mute and, and holds this space. And at one point, um, her timer, her timer goes off, this little beep, 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 and only then does she look down and says, it's since I came out on this platform, it's been six minutes and 20 seconds. That's the amount of time it took for a shooter to kill 17 people in my high school. Only then does she break her gaze and look down at her notes and begin to speak. It's been said that the difference between a moment and a movement is the willingness to sacrifice something. Because marches are easy, 
right? It's easy to make a sign and take to the streets. Sustained energy that translates into a real change. That's harder, and I think it demands something deeper of us. Emma Gonzalez said something kind of like that to a reporter yesterday. She acknowledged that there are not any quick fixes, there's no easy solutions to the intractable problems of gun violence in America. This movement, she told a reporter, is probably going to take years. And at this point, she said, I don't know that I mind that, because nothing that's worth it is easy. We could very well, she said, we could very well die trying to do this, but we could very well die not trying to do this. So why not die for something rather than nothing? Why not die for something rather than nothing? I mean, that's, that's youthful energy and conviction, right? I mean, how easy is it to, to dedicate your life to something when you're all of 17 years old? She's, she's waving her palm branch, right? She's the one who gets to wave it because the rest of us have blood on our hands. We are complicit. And it's so easy for us because we've learned how to do this, right? To push back. Wait a minute, Emma. Things are not that simple. Things are not that romantic. Some of us have been doing this work for decades, right? You don't understand. You don't understand how tricky, how complicated this is. Maybe she does and maybe she doesn't. I don't, I don't know Emma Gonzalez. I suspect that she understands a whole lot better than I do what's really at stake here. What I cannot forget is her face as she stands there holding the crowd in this horrible, awful silence. The pain that she's holding, the agony that has marked her life as a young woman, the cross that she is bearing into a world that is filled with hatred. And I, I think about the people that are going to come gunning for her. You know, they already have, right? The people who are going to attack her and demean her and try to tear her down, and the people who are, who are going to try to make her into their hero. I mean, there are, there are a thousand different ways to, to undercut your leaders, and not just through criticism. I mean, Jesus learns this on Palm Sunday, right? The worst things happen to you when they're cheering your name the loudest. Hosanna's turn to crucify in the blink of an eye. We are a fickle people. And here we are on, on Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday, the day on which we, we wave our palm branches, we cry Hosanna, and then we turn right around and we shout crucify, crucify, crucify. We see played out before us the horrible results of our handiwork. This is what human beings do. The story of Jesus' trial and death is filled with adults who have compromised, and each of us has blood on our hands. And yet, I think we show up here because we know that. We know we have blood on our hands, and we know that we need to be healed. We know that we need to be forgiven. And so we, we creep forward to this, this cross, we stand at this rail, we kneel at this rail, we, we dare to turn our eyes up and gaze into the face of the one whom we have betrayed time and time again. And if we want to be healed, we are asked to connect, I think, once more to that deep part of ourselves. It's the love and the pain that we knew as children, the mark of God that was inscribed on our hearts before we ever opened our eyes into the harsh light of the world for the first time. We're asked to connect with this story as a child might, with all of our confusion and our wonderment, our fascination, our fear. Jesus says, unless you become as a child, you can never enter the kingdom of God. 
So it's okay to be afraid. It's okay not to understand. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to hurt. It's okay not to be okay. You're carrying a cross, right? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. I don't know, what you're, I don't know what yours looks like. I am willing to bet the cross has found you one way or another and that you are very much in touch with the hardwood and the splinters and the weight of this thing. So get in touch with that, right? Find the cross that you are carrying. Maybe you've been carrying it for years. Maybe it's just landed on your back. But find the, the quick of your suffering, the tender point of your pain. Get in touch with that place and then breathe into this story and let it carry you through all of that, all the way up to this altar rail, right? This, this is a place where we are invited to, to stand or to kneel beneath that cross, shrouded in red this morning, but revealed in its horrible and unbelievably beautiful glory in just a few days. This altar rail exists as a place to show up with everything that you're carrying, all of the questions and fears and fantasies and doubts and hopes, the memories that haunt us, bringing all of that with us. We lay it down. We let it drop from our hands so that all we have left is emptiness, these empty hands stretched out, waiting for whatever God will choose to put in them. We render our lives back to the one who gave us breath, and we stand waiting and empty with our hands open, ready to receive whatever comes, empty of, of everything but desire, that desire that remains with us to come close to the truth, this desire that our life might still mean something, this hunger for God that carries us through the pain and the violence and the death of love, onto the other side of a Good Friday, the other side of that gulf of silence and emptiness and darkness. Because on the other side of that, that gulf, that desert, is love unknown. It's love transfigured, it's love transformed, and there are scars in his nails, scars in his hand from the nails. He will never be the same again, right? Jesus of Nazareth does not get to go back to being a child. The innocence is lost. The meaning is not. Because beyond the, the desert or the gulf of our adulthood, beyond the wasteland of our maturity and our compromise, the valley of our faithlessness and our failure, beyond the desert of criticism and cynicism, we wish to be called again. We wish to be called again.